you're listening to the Living Word Church podcast. To learn more about Living Word Church and our service times, visit us online at livingwordchurch.org. Today's message comes from our executive pastor, Vincent Pavone. I uh, have the assignment today of doing uh, the sixth chapter of the Gospel of uh, Mark, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share the Word of God. But uh, if I were to judge the whole book of Mark with a movie classification, it would be action slash uh, adventure, because I think that's really what we're going to look at this morning. There are a number of scenes, and if you can kind of think of it as, as uh, maybe y- you've seen some of the, uh, the series The Chosen, and there's a, a great scene in The Chosen that is uh, found here in the sixth chapter of, of Mark. And so maybe think of, in terms of these different events that are taking place as, as one scene right, right after another. So we're going to be looking at some of the questions about how do we deal with rejection? How do we deal with, with the issue of real persecution that is taking place against fellow believers? Uh, what can we do in the face of the impossible and being in an impossible situation? So number one, let's, let's look at rejection. No one likes being rejected. Yet I suppose that it's one of the most uh, common human experiences, but it stings, doesn't it? And while rejection is unavoidable, the reaction to rejection is pretty much predictable. I mean, you reject me, I'm going to reject you. And aside from the fact that it does sting, depending upon how close you are to the person or you would like to be close to that person, doing the rejecting, that's the level of pain that will, will come forth from, from the rejection. For example, if, if it's a parent that's rejecting you, or or if it's a love interest, or if it's a spouse, and you've been rejected by that person, that stings. If you're not a follower of Jesus, and this is is a place in the scripture, uh, or a place in the service where we just love to express the fact that we thank you so much for being here. Again, if you're not a follower of Jesus. Now, we make a distinction between being a follower of Jesus and being a Christian. Because a lot of times people will identify themselves as a Christian, but really have no vital relationship with Jesus whatsoever. They they may have been uh, baptized when they were infants. They may have come from a Christian uh, setting or Christian family, but they themselves are not in a personal relationship. But if if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, to me that means you're following hard after him. You, you want to know him. You want to serve him. You want to live for him. And so, and so that is my definition of what a true follower of Jesus is. But you know what? Rejection hurts whether you're a believer or not, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Rejection from someone like a spouse or, or like a love interest hurts. But, but here's one great truth that we have as followers of Jesus is that we will never, ever be forsaken or rejected by the one that we go to for salvation. He says, to the one that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And so we have this exceeding great, one of many exceeding great and precious promises that's been given to us from the Lord. And I call that, that comes under the, the irrevocable covenant. The irrevocable covenant that was ratified by the life being outpoured on the cross. And, and, and the confirmation of that is the resurrection that God raised him from the dead, to an endless life, a life that's no longer subject to to weakness, sickness, death. Uh, But but that's the kind of life that he's promised to give to you and me as followers of Jesus as well. 
You know, the Bible has a lot to say about rejection. In fact, God is on the receiving end of rejection. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that humanity has exchanged the truth about God for the lie and has worshipped the creation instead of the creator. Rejected the creator, worshipped the creation. It says even though men knew God, they did not retain God in their hearts or in their knowledge. At one point in Israel's history, they became discontent with with Yahweh being their king. And so they demanded of Samuel, give us a king that we might be like the other nations. And the Lord spoke to the prophet. The prophet was upset, but the Lord said said to, 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 to Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me to be their king. Give them a king. Appoint them a king. And they would soon begin to regret that decision. So in Mark chapter 6, we're talking about now the rejection of Jesus. And Jesus comes to his hometown. Think of it as his homecoming. He's, he's gone off to start his ministry. He's been healing the sick. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been casting out demons. And now he has a group of disciples with him. And they come back now to Nazareth. And he's going to uh, hang out here for a little while. But he's going to be rejected here in his own hometown. I tell you what, it reminds me of the opening of John's gospel. John says that Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not. His own rejected him. But to as many as did receive him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, even to those that believe upon his name. And what I want you to see and understand here is that the way in which men and women receive or reject Jesus The way in which they receive him really is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of light and darkness. Those that reject Jesus will know nothing but sorrow and heartache, while those who receive Jesus will receive joy unspeakable, full of glory, will will, will receive every good and perfect gift coming under the many promises that we have and and that irrevocable covenant. So we begin in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. And the next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Now, as we'll, we'll see as this developed, they weren't amazed in wonder and awe and uh, in, in being thrilled with what he was saying. Rather, it's, it's kind of the opposite. Luke tells us, because Luke records the very same incident as well in the synagogue, where he grew up, where he, where he was uh, known for, for being the, the carpenter's son, right? Uh, he takes the scroll of Isaiah, and he finds the place where we know to be Isaiah 61, and he begins to read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the, to the poor, to open blind eyes, to, to set free captives, to heal the brokenhearted. What gracious words these were. But instead of being moved by them, because Jesus started going into the fact that how God was gracious, first of all, he said this. He said, while all eyes were fixed on him, he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And when their mouth hit the floor, because this was a scripture reserved completely and only for the coming of the Messiah, they were basically thinking to themselves, are you saying, Jesus, that you're the Messiah? Hello, yes, that's exactly what he was saying. But as he went on and he began to share how God was gracious 
to the Gentiles, that there were many who were widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, many who were lepers in the days of Elijah, but to none of them was God said, except to a, a widow in, in, as a Gentile and to Naaman as a, as a Gentile captain of the Syrian army. And they, they were offended at Jesus. And their offense, probably what's, what something had to do with that was their familiarity with him. They, they, they knew him. And they, 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 they knew him to be just the carpenter's son. And so where is he getting all these things from? So I want you to see this. Rumors of his miracle-working power had preceded him, right? But there's a level of excitement, but, but it's negative excitement. It's, it's because there were others in the past who had claimed to be the Messiah, but it had come to nothing. And so they ask, and here's where we see their sarcasm. They did, said, where did he get this wisdom and this power to perform such miracles? And then they scoffed. That is, they made fun of, they ridiculed him, they laughed at him. He's just a carpenter's son. Just the son of Mary and his brother, Joseph and James and Jude and Simon. And his sisters live right here among them, among us. And they were deeply offended and they refused to believe in him. They were, that's rejection. Now let me just touch on this issue first with the family of Jesus. He had brothers and he had, he had at least two sisters that we know of. Mary and Joseph had a large family after the virgin birth of Jesus. And some denominations would have you to believe that Mary remained a virgin for her entire life, which is just contrary to scripture. Because Jesus had brothers who did not believe upon him and who rejected him. And then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own family. We can hear the sting in those final words, his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any mighty miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he, Jesus, was amazed at their unbelief. It was their unbelief that prevented them from truly being blessed. I mean, I would just imagine if they gladly received him and welcomed him and accepted him, what kind of miracles, what, what kind of grace would have been poured out upon that little city called Nazareth? But their familiarity with him became a stumbling block. And we can hear the sting in his words. Doug made reference a couple of weeks ago, I believe it was, to the fact that his brothers did not believe in him, but went way beyond that because John records in the gospel closer to the cross when Jesus would have gone up to the feast of Passover in Jerusalem that his brothers actually tried to lay hold of him because they felt that he was beside himself. He felt that they felt that he was mentally unstable. And here it says that they were deeply Offended, and their offense turned to anger, and their anger actually turned to violence because Luke does give us the detail that they attempted to throw Jesus off of the, the hill upon which the city was built. So they go from unbelief to anger and anger to, to attempted murder. And Jesus passed right through their midst. These are not the clones, the drones you're looking for. <laughs> Is it drones or cor- crones? 
Droids, droids. These are not the droids you're looking for. I don't think Jesus had to say that. It just had a you know, pester there midst. But I want you to imagine this scenario with me for a minute. You're driving home. It's late one night. You're on the Norton State Parkway. And, and just moments before, you could see it at a distance. A car veers off the road and crashes right into a utility pole. Oh, you're shocked. And so you, you pull over to see if you could be of some help to... This, this person that has just smacked up his car, and you realize that the car is just beginning to catch fire. You go over to open up the door, but the door is jammed. The, the airbag has gone off, and the, the, the driving, person driving the car is, is passed out. And so what, what do you do? You, you try to break the window open to free the person. And meanwhile, he comes to, and suddenly he sees you as a threat. And what does he do? He pulls out a gun that's next to him, and he starts shooting at you. Son of God came to seek and save the lost, to rescue men from a devastating wreck. But instead of being greeted with thankful humility, there was a plot now to assassinate the Son of God. What do you do with rejection? Well, let's, let's see what Jesus did. Instead of, instead of being spiteful, instead of saying, well, you reject me, I'll reject you, he pours out grace. In spite of his rejection, Jesus actually multiplies the efforts of his ministry to seek and save the lost. How does he do that? He takes the 12 and he sends them out two by two. And he sends them out with authority to heal the sick, to cast out devils, to proclaim the gospel. And they go out. Now, I want you to notice verse 12, Mark 6, verse 12. And this is action-packed, Right? So they went out and they preached that people should repent, that is, turn to God. And they cast out many demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick. And I love those last three words, and healed them. They had success in ministry. And what I want you to know is this, is that the commission to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out devils has never been rescinded. It continues in our day, and it's only been reinforced by the coming of the Holy Spirit who, who disperses gifts of healing and gifts of faith and gifts of the workings of miracles to the body of Christ. Holy Spirit demonstrates the power of the gospel so that our faith would not rest in the wisdom of words, but in the power of God. I love this next scene in Mark chapter 6. And you know what? It, it, it kind of seems disconnected from what we've looked at so far, but really it, it, it underscores what's taking place here. And so Mark begins to tell us about John the Baptist, tells us about his arrest and how that he's been put into prison because, because King Herod didn't like what he said about marrying his brother's wife. And, and he's in prison and he has this feast and you, you probably know the story. And so, and so, Mark tells us about the gruesome execution, the beheading of John the Baptist. And instead of being disjointed, it really, it really confirms this whole issue of rejecting those whom God sends to rescue the lost. Did you know that in, in the second book of Chronicles, which is a history of the record of the kings of Israel and Judah, that motivated simply on the basis of God's compassion, he would send them messengers, send them prophets 
to bring them back, to woo them back to, to a relationship with God when they would go astray. And this is how they responded. They mocked God's messengers. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets. Sound familiar? Until there was no remedy. And that's when the Lord allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to sack Jerusalem and Israel and, and carry away captives. And that led to what we know as the book of Daniel, which has already been covered here some months ago. What I want you to see is this. In a very real sense, persecution, spiritual warfare, began with temptation. It began with temptation in the garden called paradise. And it's only fitting that the most significant and the greatest battle for the souls of men would take place in another garden called Gethsemane, where Jesus began the victory of overcoming sin, death, and the grave. Persecution continues to this day. According to a, a group called Open Doors, a worldwide organization, 360 million followers of Jesus suffer severe persecution. I'm not just talking about just somebody making fun at you at work. We're talking about people losing their lives, people having their, their goods confiscated, churches being burnt down, 360 million worldwide. Stephen was the first of the followers of Jesus who met with a violent and, but not really, although he was stoned to death. But I want you to hear what Stephen said concerning the defense of Jesus being the Messiah in the, in the midst of this. This is what he said. He said, you are stubborn people and hard-hearted. You always resist the Holy Spirit as did your fathers, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Implication, all of them. They killed those who foretold the coming of the Messiah, of whom now you have become betrayers and murderers. In the crowd, there was a young man who was holding the garments of those that would throw in the rocks. His name happened to be Saul of Tarsus, who later would be transformed into Paul the Apostle. And while Stephen is being crushed with stones, how does he respond to persecution? He says, Lord, forgive them. Do not hold this charge against them. And then he says, behold, I see the, the heavens open and the Son of God standing at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, in so many other places in Scripture, we find Jesus seated at the right hand of glory. But here he's standing. Why is he, why is he standing? I think he's standing to, with excitement to welcome the first that were to shed his blood for the sake of of Christ. See, serving the purposes of God is to swim against the tide, the currents of this broken world that is held under the embrace of the wicked one. One of the prophets said, if you want to sing the blues, you've got to pay your dues and you know it, don't come easy. Wasn't Paul, wasn't John, wasn't even George, it was Ringo. But I'll tell you why Jesus said something more impactful. He said that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. In other words, don't be surprised by opposition. Don't, don't, don't be surprised when there's conflict and opposition. Don't be shocked when adversity comes when it comes to doing the will of God. 
Opposition will come from without, it will also come from within. With tears running down his face, the apostle Paul said, I know that when I leave, ravenous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock of God. And even from among your own selves will arise men who will draw away disciples to themselves to satisfy their own selfish purpose. How do we respond to the battle of good and evil in the midst of persecution or rejection? We are watchful. Be diligent. Guard our heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We, we learned something a few weeks ago in our men's meeting that Adam actually abdicated. He forsook his responsibility to, to, number one, guard the garden, number two, guard his wife, and most importantly, guard his own heart. And that temptation was indeed spiritual warfare that took place, which he failed miserably. Somebody told me at the, at the end of the second service, they were reading how that in Luke chapter 4, Jesus successfully overcame the temptations of Satan. and Satan fled from him. Now in the New Testament, because of Jesus and the battle that he's already won, the scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That we have authority over all the power of the enemy and by no means shall the enemy harm us. Because where sin does abound, Grace of God is even greater. Who knows but that God may transform a present-day persecutor into a future-day apostle, Paul. This next scene in the Gospel of Mark is great, and, and, and this, this is the one that I saw in the series, The, uh, the Chosen. It's where Jesus turns bread and fish into a gourmet feast. You know, gourmet meal. Boy, I imagine that was the best-tasting fish ever, you know. And uh, they, they, they were these small little barley loaves, right? Uh, but, the, but think about the fish. You know, my, my son Will, when he was like about this big, maybe about six, seven years old, uh, he loved to fish down by the pond by our house. And he was just so happy that he caught this huge forage fish. <laughs> and he was excited to give it to my mom because he knew my mom loved to eat fish. And so when he presented it, he was so proud of his fish, you know? And so my mom says, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll put it in the freezer. The next time I make fish, I'll take it out of the freezer. So one day, Will is at the house, right? And uh, my mom takes, this is, in the interim, somebody caught a bluefish locally, and the thing was really huge. And she takes it out of the freezer, and she kind of implies to, to my son, this is what happened to your fish. It was transformed in the in the freezer, it grew. And he's, wow, this is amazing. Uh, he's now a pastor in Chicago. Hope he doesn't tell any fish stories today. But this next story is not fishy at all. At this point in the ministry of Jesus, he and the disciples are just so busy, they don't even have time enough to stop to eat. And so their intention was to get away and rest for a little while. But that was impossible because the crowds would follow after him. And you know what? Jesus would never put himself above his mission. And his mission was to reach the lost. And so he sees the people as sheep without having a shepherd and has compassion upon them and begins to teach. And he's teaching all day long and sharing these great truths with the people. 
And the disciples come to him in the, almost the end of the day, and they say, he said, they said, Lord, you've got to send the people away into the villages and towns nearby so they could buy something to eat, lest they should faint while they're on their way back home. And, and, and I love this. Jesus looks at them and says, you give them something to eat. Say, what? You give them something to eat. Then Jesus said, what do you have? Well, they, they, they said, I'm sorry. First they said, we'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. Well, Jesus said, well, how much bread do you have? And so they came back and they reported. Obviously, they find this little kid with, a, with, a, with his lunch, and, and they're persuaded him to give him the... We're talking, we're talking about five little barley loaves, uh, not Italian loaves of bread, folks, but probably something smaller than a bagel, you know, a barley loaf. And so Jesus then says, have the people sit down in groups of 50 and 100. And Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and he looked up to heaven, and he blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to his disciples so that he could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. And they, I love this part, and they all ate as much as they wanted. You know, when you come to Jesus, he will satisfy your every need. I believe that with all my heart. And afterwards, the disciples, listen to this, they picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. Holy cow! No, maybe holy mackerel. Maybe that's where they came from. I love to find the, the origins of phrases, but I don't know if, that, if that'll fly. <laughs> What do we learn from the story? What is God telling living word this morning? Folks, it's easy to see the problem, isn't it? It's easy to come up against something that we think this is impossible. It's too hard. It's too difficult for me. They see the problem. Jesus sees the answer. The miracle was consistent with the mission of confirming who he was as the promised Messiah where nothing would be too hard for God. Where God's Spirit is saying to us this morning, living word, you're on mission. The mission is to reach the lost, to, 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 to share the gospel, that his is the only name whereby men must be saved, to, to young and old alike, and to save as many as one can. We're on a divinely appointed mission. And I, I believe with all my heart that we're on Hoffman Lane, on, on 495 Hoffman Lane right now for a divine purpose. See, when we sold our building on this concert highway, we, we were kind of forced to. Uh, the town took away, uh, or the DOJ took away uh, our ability to park it on the street, and we knew that our, that our growth would be limited. And so we took a step of faith. God was actually calling us to walk out of the boat onto the water. And we did that. We entered into a contract to sell the building before we knew where we were going. It was a great step of faith. And one of the first places that we looked at would have been horrible for us. But then this place opened up. You could say it was kind of supernatural. I mean, this is a public school facility. I don't know if there's any other church on Long Island and maybe even all of New York that has church in a public school facility. But God is in the business of doing the impossible. 
And so here we are. Then we get this information about a year or so when we're here that a piece of property at 328 Hoffman Lane opens up. And we go there, and it's beautiful. And the landscaping is tremendous. The trees, there's a 5,000-square-foot building on a five acres of land. They want a lot of money. And we dreamed, and we said, yeah, it's hard, but God, we know that you can do all things. And God did what only God can do. He made a way where there is no way. And then the worldwide pandemic happened. And then inflation happened and interest rates and supply chain shortages took place. And all the dreams that we have and the plans that we have of building a building, it all looked impossible. Seeing the difficulty isn't hard. Anybody with eyes can see how how difficult it is, so we should not be surprised. But faith sees the one who knows the answer. And faith locks us into a connection with the living word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know what? I don't know how he'll do it, but I know what he's done in the past. And I know that living word has a rich history of God doing the impossible. And I'm convinced that our destiny is fixed and that we will see even greater things than we can hope for or imagine. See, the miracle that we need is consistent with the mission that we have from God. And our mission is to reach people with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. But I want you to know, it is not being postponed to there and then. It's here and now. It's right now in this room as we speak. We are, we are t- touching lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. People are coming to Christ. Lives are being touched because the mission is important. The elephant in the room is big, but God is bigger than all of our needs. This next scene in the Gospel of, of Mark chapter 6 follows the miracle of the loaves and fish. And we, again, we don't see a connection, but there really is one, and maybe even one that's more obvious. After everyone is eaten, Jesus dismisses the crowds. He tells the disciples, get in the boat. I want you to go over to Bethsaida, across the Lake of Galilee to Bethsaida. I'm going to go and pray for a while. And while Jesus is praying, the disciples find themselves in trouble once again when they're on the Lake of Galilee. They are struggling against the wind and the waves, and it's not looking good for them. I just want you to know this. If, if you belong to Jesus, he knows when you're in distress. He, he knows when you're in trouble, and he is not indifferent to your needs, but he knows. And Jesus does something that's absolutely extraordinary. He comes walking on the water. And they see him, and they're terrified, and they're terrified because of everything that's going on. And then Jesus says this in verse 50. He says, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Suddenly, everything just calmed down. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Notice here's the connection. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. 
This is yet another one of those demonstrations of Jesus exhibiting power over creation. We looked at this in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark. When, when, when they said to Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die? We're going to perish. They were caught in a storm. And Jesus stood up and he rebuked the wind. He shut it down like that. And the waves calmed. And they said to each other, what kind of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Well, he's no ordinary man. He is the extraordinary son of God, son of man. So what's the connection then where, where, where Mark tells us they just didn't get it. They didn't understand about the loaves and the bread. Here's what I see as the connection. They were slow to understand the majesty of who he really was. They were dull to comprehend the extent of his power. See, these men have read about the miracles of Moses and Elijah and some of the other prophets. But Jesus is far and above anyone and everyone else. Jesus is, is filled with the Spirit. The others were anointed with the Spirit, but Jesus was filled with the Spirit without measure, without limitations. He had authority to forgive sins, and only God can forgive sins. Hello? They should have gotten some greater understanding Back then, he has power over death. He has power over demons. He commands the elements, and the elements obey him. So what does it mean? Their hearts were hardened. See, I kind of think that, and this is conjecture on my part, that they had baskets of leftovers with them. Maybe they took it for a snack later on in the day, right? Baskets of leftover bread and fish. The miracle staring them right in the face but they miss both the significance and the magnitude of the miracle. How quickly they were, and sometimes we are, to forget past mercies. Yesterday's miracles fade in the light of present troubles. Let me say that again. Yesterday's miracles fade in the light of present troubles. See, isn't, isn't it funny when we go through a trial and we discover something about God, we discover something about ourselves, and, and we've learned with wisdom through that. And then, and then the next trial that we have has nothing to do with the previous trial. And it's a learning experience all over again. And, and sometimes they just kind of wish that we could utilize what we've learned in the past to help us in the present. But here's the thing, is that yesterday's demonstration of power and grace should have produced in them a confidence and a faith in God, but they were distracted and distressed by a new set of problems. And I think that sometimes happens to us. It's exactly when everything is falling apart around us, that's the time that we need to be still and know that he is God. And in that moment of calmness, when they were greatly amazed and they marveled, they came just a little bit closer to understanding the meaning of Emmanuel. God with us. He is very God, and he is very man. As the Son of God, he always was, always will be, co-equal, co-glorious, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. But in the fullness of time, God said, Son, go, I've prepared for you a body, and I've prepared for you a human nature. And Jesus is the most unique person in all of everything. For he is completely God and completely man. 
He has two distinct natures. He is not God humanized, neither is he man deified. Those two are separate and unique natures. I don't know if you realize this, but the significance with which God has elevated the human race, that he now shares identification and partnership with a human being, and his nature is, 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 is gracious and loving and faithful. And he sits upon the throne of the universe. And then Jesus turns around and in Revelation 3.21 says, if you will conquer or overcome, then I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne just as I have overcome and sat down on my father's throne. What an elevation we have been brought to. What things God has in store for us, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. So, how do we respond to these things? Anyone can see the impossible. Anyone can see the difficulty of the, of the things that we face. I mean, think about it. Doug last week mentioned that seven years ago, my daughter Kelly almost died. But God, but God had mercy upon her. And it has not been easy. It has been hard. And I want to pray for her by the end of this service and ask you to join with me in prayer for her. I'll tell anybody, I don't know anyone who has suffered as much as Kelly. But I'll also tell you, I don't know anyone who is as strong as Kelly. Uh, ask my wife who her hero is. It's not me. It's Kelly. I'm down on the list. Je Jesus, Kelly, and um, grandkids, and then... <laughs> Back in, in... Let me just say this. If, if seven years ago God were to take Kelly home, I believe Jesus would have been standing up, welcoming Kelly into the kingdom. Back in 2020, when, when the pandemic first broke out, this is in March, when, when things were first starting to happen, my wife was taken by ambulance to the hospital. She had pneumonia. She was on a respirator for 12 days. She had two sepsis, antibiotic-resistant infections. Back in the day when only... 20% of people put on a respirator could possibly come off. And we have friends, and we know folks, that will put on respirators who did not come home. But God had mercy. But if God were to take my wife back in 2020, I know he would have been standing up to welcome Kathy into his kingdom. Last week, Doug mentioned about himself, and I don't have the time to tell you of all the things that, that Doug had to overcome, the obstacles of, of being on an ECMO machine and having his lungs uh, collapse and, and, and puncturing his lung ex accidentally. But God had mercy. God had mercy. I know that when I sometimes tell people about my daughter's needs and, and, and about my wife's needs and... Uh, a lot of times I, I, I sense the compassion and the desire to kind of comfort and to, and to pray and then do appreciate that. But, but, but sometimes I don't want people to feel sorry for anyone could see how much we suffered, but I see Jesus come walking on the water. 
I see Jesus coming to our rescue. And had he not come to our rescue, he still would have been worthy of all of our praise and worship. So in closing here, let me just say this, that that Jesus and the disciples come to Bethsaida. They they land on their boat, and the news of his arrival spreads throughout the towns and villages, and they bring the sick people on stretches and on, on cots, and they lay them in the streets with the hope that they could just touch his clothes. Why? Because they found out the rumor came to them preceded Jesus coming that there was a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, spent her entire living on doctors and made no better but worse. And all she did was touch the hem of his garment and she was completely healed. They heard, they believed, and they received. It's that level of expectation that God met their level of expectation The way in which they received him, that's the measure to which they were blessed. This morning I say the very same thing to us. In the beginning of this message I said, how we respond to Jesus is the difference between life and death. Those who reject Jesus will know nothing but heartache and sorrow, but those that receive him will have every good and perfect gift. For by grace are we saved through faith, that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, the gift for believing, the gift for receiving. And I'd like anyone to give anyone the opportunity this morning, if you've never done that, in just a few minutes as we pray. But let me just touch again all of these issues, including the rejection. You will never be rejected but the one that you come to for salvation, he said, I will in no wise cast you aside. So we stay on course. We stay on mission. We face the impossible, knowing the one in whom all things are possible. I want you to know that Jesus is still on mission. He still heals the sick. He still casts out devils. He is proclaiming the gospel, but now he does it through the Holy Spirit and through the body of Christ. There's a song that the band is going to lead us in, and I so appreciate the worship team. They so consistently lead us into great places of worship. But this song that we're going to sing now was chosen specifically for this message because I believe it sums up all of these things that I'm talking about this morning. Listen to just a couple of verses. It says, there's peace that outlasts darkness, hope that's in the blood. There's future grace that's mine today that Jesus Christ has won. Every achievement, every accomplishment we have, it's because he has won that for us. So I can face tomorrow for tomorrow's in your hands. All I need, you will provide just like you always have. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. Don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. I'm fighting a battle that you've already won. And so here's an open invitation. If this applies to you today, and you would like to receive Christ, would you pray with me something like this? Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. Jesus, I open my heart to you. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I trust you, believe in you. I want to know you, and I want to live for you. Now I'd like to ask you to join with me in prayer for my daughter Kelly. I believe that Kelly is in store for a miracle. 
And I believe that Jesus will come walking on the water to her now and touch her and heal her. So with our hearts all joining together, let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We sang about him this morning. He's the healer. He is the provider. He is the one who's given himself for us as us. And so Jesus, by your bleeding stripes, I and we together as the body of Christ, we apply the blood of Jesus, the bleeding stripes of Jesus that Isaiah said, by it we are healed. And so we release the word in Psalm 107 verse 20 to Kelly Jansen. Lift her up today from suffering, from pain, from sorrow, from the physical torment that she's experienced over the last number of years. That you, Father, would be glorified. Jesus, you said, ask anything in my name and I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Would you do that now, Jesus, so that the Father may be honored? In Jesus' name we pray.